Wicked good kids. Yes, they're wicked good. <laughs> John's given like some free distribution strategy yeah. right here. Listen up, Listen everyone. In, wicked good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hey everyone, and welcome to Another Bite, the show where we rewatch some of the greatest and, well, some of the most intriguing pitches from Shark Tank. I'm Jory, and I'm joined by John Dick. Hey. And Ariel Boswell. Hey everyone. Today in Shark Tank, we have a product that will school you in scholarships. Another that's just so wicked, Pesa kid. But first, <laughs> there's a product that will give you real bang for your buck. But first, a quick word from our sponsor. First up in the tank, we have Lulu Bang. So Kelly and Jure come to us asking for $150,000 for a 10% equity stake in their company. That shakes out to about $1.5 million. And <laughs> I, I wasn't quite sure where we were going with this product, right? Because right out of the gate, they're like, if you like us, you like to bang. And that's Gosh. when I realized I am definitely not from Philadelphia because they were like, <laughs> it's the simple joy in life. You want to bang for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> I wasn't sure what we were going to be talking about in terms of a product, but it was not what we ended up getting. So Lulu Bang is a series of unique sauces that are infused with herbs and spices, you know, all those natural flavors. You can use any of their sauces on anything. So you name it and you can, quote, bang it. Oh. We can talk about branding in just a moment, but what were we thinking about Lulu Bang and our two founders? For a product that is called Bang, like, the packaging is pretty boring. Mm -hmm. It's still, it bang doesn't is like, boring. <laughs> bang, you know, like bang has got to be loud. I don't know about you guys, but I was a little bit confused. I was like, is this a salsa? Is mm -hmm. this a dip? This doesn't feel like a traditional like barbecue sauce or sauce like packaging, which was interesting. Yeah, I'm very confused by the brand, actually. I think they're in a very tough spot. I think that mm -hmm. they are in the Venn diagram between Frank's Red Hot and Sweet mm -hmm. Baby Ray's. And I say yeah. that because Frank's Red Hot is you can put that shit on anything. <laughs> And Sweet Baby Ray's is the sauce is the boss. And I think that's a very tough Venn diagram to be in. They might have to choose an angle on which one they want to go for more. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I struggle with the brand. Like not having what it is in the title is actually pretty limiting. And in fact, mm -hmm. I think this is going to be a big problem for them overall because their biggest challenge is going to be distribution. Mm -hmm. And early days on distribution, like you kind of have to be specific, right? Mm -hmm. Especially if you don't have a ton of money to spend. You got to say, we are this thing for this use case. For, or for this type of person and go super deep in that way because you can't spread your money too wide in the early days if you don't have a lot of money to spend. So I think they're actually going to struggle because they want to be everything. They want to be a sauce for everything. And that's just going to be really hard, I think, for them to break through. And their their packaging doesn't pull it through. Their brand name doesn't pull it through. Uh, even just their like catchphrases don't pull that through either. Like, at least when something says, like, barbecue sauce, it's like, okay, I kind of get the general gist of, like, what I'm supposed to be putting this on. But, like, mm -hmm. bang sauce, like, I, what? That See, is I not on my grocery bang list. Sauce, bang sauce would be a step forward. Lulu's bang sauce would be even <laughs> right. another step forward. Lulu's bang sauce for barbecue would be an even better step forward. <laughs> give me specifics. <laughs> or how small of a business they were in terms like total sales that they got into 170 stores. Mm -hmm. I just feel like that was a huge win. I'm with you. It's impressive that they're in store in 170 stores, but no one's buying it. Right. And that's only I think I did the math really fast. It's 4% of Walmart stores are carrying it, which 170 sounds so much more. But when you think mm -hmm. about like Walmart's like footprint of like 4,000 like brick and mortar locations, like it really is a small drop in the bucket. 
I think it was interesting too. I understand like the everyday low pricing is like a big thing, like especially within Walmart, but I just feel like they could have put it at like a higher price point. Well, they're in a very crowded category. Right. And they don't have a lot of money to spend. Yeah. And so this is a problem I think that many companies and brands find themselves in. And the question is just like, how are you going to break through that? The traditional way to break through it is money. Mm-hmm. And forever, that's been the way. Is that, well, if you have enough money, you can just spend on brand and advertising and partnerships and all these things, and you'll kind of break through that. But for like, most people don't actually want to try a new barbecue sauce. It's actually like high risk for whoever's cooking dinner at home to try a new barbecue sauce. True. A lot's on steak. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine rolling out like, you know, pulled pork with a, a new sauce on it and everybody rejecting it at the table? Nothing feels worse. <laughs> that feels like it's personal, John. <laughs> <laughs> can I tell you a true story? I, I yes. once, Please do. This is dark. I can't believe oh. I'm going to tell this story. One time when I was in middle school, my mother served a quiche and I made vomit noises at the table and it made her cry and uh, it's one of the darkest (laughs) darkest moments in my upbringing it's it's never a quiche again if you know oh i love quiche now i make quiche all the time and it's like but it's like retribution quiche right like i don't even know if i like i'm atoning for my sins (laughs) i'm atoning for my sins there it's shaped it's done more to shape my my personality than almost anything else that's happened in my life But I don't need my kids doing that to me. I never want that to happen to me. I don't want to cry over my pulled pork. Over barbecue sauce. Oh, my God. So it wasn't necessarily like the branding, although the sharks were sort of like, what is this? Like, I think there could be improvements. But I feel like it was the distribution strategy and those numbers where things started to fall apart. So as you mentioned, like, uh, Ariel, there's like the cost to make, which is 100 or 190 cents, yes, $1.90. Um, and it sells for $3.99. So you have like one issue there in terms of margin. So it's true. It had launched in 170 stores as a product. But then you look at the numbers of like up at the point of the episode, they had made $45,000, which on a sauce is super good. It's the fact that they were selling only 500 a week at Walmart on average. Divide that by the total number of stores that they're in, they're only selling 2.5 bottles a week per mm-hmm. store. And that I, I agree, Jory, but I wonder too, and I don't know as much about like Walmart's program for finding local businesses and kind of sourcing them, but I wonder how much of this is also a limitation on like the program itself, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's things Walmart can do, like offer point of sale or end caps or in store like activations in terms of like sampling and taste testing. Like, is there something from like a distributor's perspective that they could have lent in more for like in-store support to kind of drive more of that interest overall? all? Or does that have to go back to the brand and the founders? You know, it's Mm -hmm. interesting, you know, who it just gets, it just gets complicated and expensive. (laughs) And you think if, even if you do in-store sampling, Mm -hmm. like how many people can you reach? Just like not that many people, right? Yeah. Like that, what, what you're getting to though, and what you both are getting to is you are getting to the fact that they've achieved distribution, but they have a conversion rate problem. Mm -hmm. Marketing is actually not, not that complicated. I would like to make it feel really complicated, but it's just about distribution and conversion rate. You could increase conversion rate by getting more people to try it. You could increase conversion rate by being more specific about what it is for and who it is for. You can increase conversion rate by lowering the price. You can increase conversion rate by improving the packaging so more people see it. You can improve conversion rate by doing a bunch of brand advertising so people actually want to buy it. But I think we're, we're circling around the idea that this is a conversion rate problem for them. And the question is just like, what's the best way to do it? 
So what is, in your opinion, what they should be doing? Like, just start with the things that are the cheapest and easiest, Mm -hmm. which is like, well, let's just see if we can sell jars without needing to put human beings giving away samples of product on the floor at Walmart every Saturday. (laughs) And I think a lot of what we're identifying kind of aligns with what we were seeing like in the shark's response, right? So ultimately, we saw all our sharks kind of go out on this deal. I thought Lori uh, going out was... It was pretty cutting because she was like, listen, some women fear the fire and some women become the Mm -hmm. fire and you've become the fire. And I'm so inspired by that, but I'm not investing. And I was like, oh, come on. (laughs) So uh, we kind of touched on it, but John, Ariel, would you invest in Bang knowing what you know? Uh, No. Depends how you define company. They might still be producing some <laughs> okay, sauce. Okay, Kevin. <laughs> I mean, right? Like, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure it's a growing or profitable company. They might be producing some small scale mm-hmm. and, you know, mm-hmm. selling it in a bunch of local stores around them, which, by the way, is not a horrible strategy to grow is to go like super deep in a geo and say, well, we've got limited resources. So we'll go like really, really deep and just saturate this particular area with with bang sauce and gain momentum that way. But I don't think that they've uh, they've they've really scaled. Same. Both two no's. I'm actually a little surprised. <laughs> uh, so the sauce continues to bang its way through America. And yes, I had to make that fun. So after the episode aired, they sold over sixty thousand dollars worth of product within seventy two hours. Wow, more than Walmart, <laughs> <laughs> more than like their lifetime sales, I believe. Yeah, up, up until that point. So sales continue to grow with over. 100 Walmart locations and five ShopRite locations where you can buy this sauce still. Uh, They plan to continue to bang their way through the nation until all of America is banging all day, every day. Next up in the tank, we have Scully. And this is a pitch that's really aiming to help students uh, with the high costs of colleges. So Christopher Gray comes to the Sharks asking for $40,000 for a 15% stake in his company. So that's a $266,666 valuation. (laughs) So Scully is a mobile app that matches students with hundreds of potential scholarships. And it's really solving the problem for the fact that college is getting more expensive. And every year, millions of dollars of scholarships are going to waste because essentially people don't know they exist. And it essentially matches you kind of like a dating app with a bunch of scholarships that are really curated from different institutions that you could qualify for. I love this kid. He was awesome, by the way. So let me just start there. Mm -hmm. First of all, I thought this kid was great. He rolled out with an awesome idea that, you know, matches altruism, Uh, with an idea for a business. And I think that's really cool. And he had a really great pitch because he had like, yeah, the demo of the app, but he made a bunch of jokes about what each shark scholarship would be. Mm -hmm. And he had a Mr. Wonderful joke, but he missed like the most obvious joke in there. He like ripped on Mr. Wonderful, but Mr. Wonderful should have basically been a royalty on your wages for the rest of your career. Oh, gosh. <laughs> That's what the Mr. Wonderful scholarship would be. I'll fund your sco- your college, but I'm going to take $1 of every dollar you make oh. until I make my money back. And then I'm going to take 50% of your wages. Into perpetuity. <laughs> Into perpetuity. <laughs> there is a real business opportunity associated with um, scholarships which is I think you can basically use it as lead gen, digital lead gen into loans, 
right? So you basically learn a bunch of information about somebody's financial well-being in order for them to figure out what scholarships they could be a good fit for. And then basically you'd pivot that into online lead gen. Like it's actually a pretty big business, like the financial services lead gen space, very targeted. Um, there's a lot of sites like this. And so I think there is a lot of competition. I would imagine that a lot of the competition has a lot of money to spend on winning on Google and stuff like that. So I'm a little nervous that it's just not like differentiated enough. And he actually, like, it's a problem that he might be trying to solve in a better way, but the people mm -hmm. who are you know trying to solve that problem might not actually need a better way because they have plenty of databases out there already. Even the the UI that he showed as well mm -hmm. felt very much like an MVP, which for listeners that don't know what that is, that stands for your most viable product. That's usually like a first iteration of like a product just to get the proof of concept kind of out there. So there wasn't really anything from a strong like logo or branding perspective that felt really unique to the process itself. It didn't feel very user intuitive, at least like on mine. Like I I couldn't see myself using an app that didn't have a little more personalization or like that the experience was, you know, a little more consumer focused. So almost like I wonder if something that could be really helpful like with this app would be <laughs> the difficulty of applying because sometimes even just like if you find the scholarship, it's like, oh, but I'm going to need to put in hours of work to, mm. to make this a viable application. And I think that's another barrier to apply. That could be a cool product feature. Level of effort uh, filter by how much you can dedicate like time-wise. Is it simple as, hey, here's just like my background, a little bit about me versus mm. here's like a dissertation <laughs> to like for your consideration? Yeah. My assumption is that Finding scholarships is not actually the problem for most people. Mm. Uh, the problem is actually doing the work to complete the scholarship applications because mm. they do think it is hard and it is one off. And so if I were him, that would be the value prop that I would start trying to lean into mm. is, you know, I, I would worry less about do I have every scholarship in my database? And I would worry more about how do I give someone insights and in how to get this scholarship and make it as easy as possible for someone to fill it out. Even like, you know, some universities you know, participate in the like common application, mm -hmm. right? Like, can you do that for scholarships? Can he like build that? Can he build partnerships mm -hmm. with a bunch of the big scholarships to say, hey, I'm going to do a common application to try and get more people. Like those are the things that I think would start setting him apart because um, he was charging a dollar in the app store to download something that's pretty widely available for free on, on Google. And so I just worry a little bit that he doesn't have quite the value add yet. And that's that's where I would probably focus. A lot of the marketing seemed based on the fact that he ha had himself won throughout his collegiate career uh, $1.3 million in scholarships, right? So mm. their big like PR strategy was the founder pitching his personal story of winning all of these scholarships. And I, I feel like integrating that somehow either like through a feature or just like more clearly in the product, especially because it's like if people are buying based on that inspirational story, just is like so much more important. If that's your differentiator, like where does it exist in the product? So there, mm -hmm. it, it kind of felt like there was like a slight disconnect in that story mm -hmm. for me. Yeah, he's super impressive. And I think his story is so yeah, inspiring. And mm -hmm. I would love for more kids to get more help with college. I think it's really cool that he's trying to solve it. Yeah, may maybe that is the way to do it. Maybe the way to do it is to leverage his own learned experience, which wasn't even about finding it. It was about how to tell his story, mm -hmm. right? Like he could do online learning around a whole bunch of things like that, where he basically becomes a coach at scale for people. 
you know, here's the 10 minute segment on how to tell your personal story in a differentiated way to win scholarships, mm-hmm. stuff like that. I bet that stuff would you build a little media company for himself instead of a aggregator of scholarship listings, which to me is pretty commoditized. I think that's what like Lori caught on to because she specifically said, you know, I want to go all in without knowing what your monetization strategy is, because I think she saw immediately the value of the upside of becoming that media distribution network or center for Scully. Yeah, well, Mark and Robert were on a path to basically discredit the whole business and discredit him because his tech is not going to actually be differentiated because the process of scraping sites that offer scholarships is not that's like that's a solved it's problem not new. that's not yeah. new and that's what they were going to get to is you have no tech you have this like you can see that playing out and i was mm-hmm. like so proud of Lori for just like mm-hmm. getting in there being like we're not doing this i'm not letting you like discredit this idea on stage in front of everybody this kid is on an awesome mission we will find a way to leverage his personal lived experience and tech in some way to help more people get scholarships like that's a mission i'm signing up for take my money let's just end this i don't think i've ever seen Lori be so forward mm-hmm. in an offer before, which you know means a lot. Like that carries its weight in gold. Like if she actually is like, we're doing it now. Yeah, because after after hearing the pitch, she she offered him exactly what he wanted. She was like, all right, without mm-hmm. even needing to know like these other details, like 40K for 15% done. And I think that that is what kind of ruffled a lot of the other shark's feathers. Like I thought it was a really low blow, but Rob ended up calling it like, we're not charity tank, right? Damon was like, I want to be in on this because I resonate with the story. And then ultimately ended up partnering up with Lori on that. The founder ultimately did take that like partnership between Lori and Damon for 40K for 15%. So definitely walked away with those two sharks. If there's anything we've learned in the past two years of watching people invest uh, during the pandemic and, and, and this whole period is that lots of people who are professional money managers throw money at things just based on vision and founder. That happens all the time. Uh, so I don't think it's strange for that to happen in Shark Tank at all, particularly when a mission does resonate so much. So would you invest in this company? Yeah. Yeah. If money's no object, definitely. Yeah. I would I would want to do more improvements from like the customer experience and like Mm -hmm. perspective there. Um, So So I I get why. Yeah, I get why the sharks were asking, like, what do your web developers, what can they do? What's like in their wheelhouse? But yeah, I would. I don't know what the combined net worth of uh, Damon and Lori is together, but it's like $20,000 each. This is not like a big, it's not some huge financial outlay here for them. You know, if I had that kind of money and I saw a pitch like this and a mission that resonated a lot with me personally, I would consider giving that money. Absolutely. Their collective net worth is big, probably. <laughs> big. <laughs> like, I don't even need a number to know. It's, it's, yeah. the, they're probably not hurting after this investment. But do you think Scully is still a company? I want it to still be a company for the sake of the founder because I really enjoyed like him and his mission. I imagine it still exists, but probably under a different name with some more features and changes. Okay. Oh. So some updated branding. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I, I think it's a company. Well, yes, Scully continues to spread the scholarship love. Mm-hmm. So in 2021, the app raised more than $100 million in scholarships for students, uh, which makes them the number one scholarship app in the world currently. Wow. Yeah. So not only that, but they were able to partner with another entrepreneur to collectively give out $100,000 in scholarships to students through their own fund called the Financial oh. Freedom Scholarship. So they're also providing their own version of a scholarship now. 
the app is currently valued at over $5 million. Uh, so definitely a, a big, big jump from our $266,000 valuation. Scholarly continues to change people's lives one scholarship at a time. Very much still a company. That's just a good heartwarming ending. Aww. <laughs> Love it. As a note, though, not to bring it down. <laughs> Okay, four. So, 100 million in scholarships last year. Four million users. Mm-hmm. Is that 25 bucks a person? Assuming equal distribution. <laughs> so, last up in the tank, we have Wicked Good Cupcakes. Uh, so, this comes to us from mother-daughter duo Tracy and Danielle. I think they were from Cohasset but they were very much leaning into being from Boston, which I have personal feelings about, but that's totally fine. Um, no, 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 no. People in Cohasset uh, talk with an accent. Definitely. Yeah, but is it Boston? Is it, I John? Think, yeah. How far yeah. is it from Boston? It's a non-Massachusetts. Oh. <laughs> I'm telling you, everybody in Massachusetts has adopted. Does does the tea go there? I think people from the suburbs of Boston have stronger Boston accents than the people who live in the city of Boston at this point. As That's a true. Because of all the transplants, probably. It's not because the Boston accent is the Massachusetts persona accent now. Mm-hmm. It is not about being from Boston. It is actually about having a Massachusetts persona. I think the Boston accent is like, by and large, understandable, but the the two founders were kind of worried that like the judges wouldn't the under, yeah the, the shacks, shacks wouldn't understand the accent. <laughs> it's under <laughs> understandable but detested. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> so accents aside, Tracy and Danielle come to the sharks asking for seventy five thousand dollars for a twenty percent stake in their company. So that's a three hundred and seventy five thousand dollar valuation. So Thinking about Wicked Good Cupcakes as a cupcake in a jar, as well as this brick and mortar shop, what are we thinking so far about our pitch? I was a little confused at first because they were showing off like the store and then they're like, this is the product. And then I think Mm -hmm. the mother had mentioned in the pitch like, oh, you're also going to be investing in the store. So I just wanted to get a better understanding of how things kind of break down, which they kind of get into for the Q&A. But those are my initial thoughts. Okay, but listen, these these women are awesome. I'm proud of them. They're out there. They're trying to build a business. I think they're going to have a hard time building their business because they have a product that is extremely undifferentiated. Cupcakes. Cupcakes with an extremely limited short life, uh, shelf life rather. And the competition they're going to be up against is actually going to be the fact that like there are small local cupcake shops everywhere. Mm. I think it is not uncommon for lots of small town bakers to say, I could open a cupcake shop and sell a lot of cupcakes. Now the cupcakes in a jar That's pretty interesting, but I know around my area, there's at least two or three places I can get cake in a jar uh, pretty quickly and easily. So yeah, Ariel's giving me a look like. (laughs) Well, drive those names, John. Where are these places? Yeah, (laughs) where are we supposed to be going? (laughs) So basically they're in a spot where, what what are their options if they actually want to scale this company from Mm -hmm. here? They either need to become like the category leader, Mm -hmm. which means you want everybody in the world to say, oh, that's just like wicked good cupcakes. Like mm-hmm. that would be them being the category leader for cupcakes in a jar. Or they need to be a distribution leader, which is like, oh, wow, wicked good cupcakes is everywhere. And so I think to do either of those things actually costs a lot of money and takes a ton of creativity. And one of the things that's, I think, really tricky for them is they're spending all their time right now producing cupcakes, mm-hmm. right? So all this stuff that they would need to do to actually get like breakthrough marketing, 
uh, or to start building a category or a brand or anything like that. It, like, I'm not sure they have the time or the capital to do it. Yeah, they had mentioned they work 13 hours a day just to like sustain the business at its current rate. I also think, by the way, that uh, the Boston movement, I think they're a few years too late on it, actually. My read on the whole like Boston movement was that, you know, the, the Pats won the Super Bowl in 2001. Oh my gosh. Yeah, let me just tell you, Ariel, <laughs> how it actually went cuts. down in the world. <laughs> I'm like, is this a conspiracy theory of like sports? No, it's just, and it's just, it's in Boston. I, you know, in technology, there's the concept of hype cycles. And I think Boston went through a hype cycle. Mm. I think the Pats won in 2001 with a little known quarterback named Tom Brady, who like came in after Drew Bledsoe went out and people were like, go Pats, this is an incredible story. And then the Red Sox won the World Series in 2004. And mm. like all of a sudden, major Hollywood movie studios were producing like Fever Pitch and like all these mainstream movies about Boston. Boston was so awesome. And then it turned out like we were too awesome. Like we just went on to win every Super Bowl. Then everyone's like, screw Boston. That place sucks. You guys, you guys are assholes. So <laughs> I think they're also on the, the downward spiral of the hype cycle of Boston. Some hot takes before Super Bowl season. as we. <laughs> so this takes place uh, back in season four. So worth noting that this was probably like at the height of the cupcake craze. But I just I didn't get it. I didn't get what the, I understood if you love this thing. But are there enough people obsessed with cupcakes for this to be a viable product? Cake in a jar is delicious. It is extremely good to have cake is in a jar. Is this just like a Boston <laughs> thing? Like I could see this being something really like cutesy as like a subscription box potentially that's like direct to consumer where like you try each month like a different like jar. You get like a set of three. It's something you can gift for someone really easily um, only in the US obviously for like shelf life reasons. Um, so I could see it if it took more of that route but not not something that's going direct into like stores that you're trying to like sell mm. in on the shelf. There's no way. Cupcakes is a service. It's a yeah. great idea. <laughs> what is that? Cass. Yeah, Cass. <laughs> totally. I think if they can get a little bit more specific about like the use case they serve, like I mm -hmm. would go super hard at like things that people are going to want to spend a lot of money on desserts for mm -hmm. baby showers, wedding showers, mm -hmm. things like that. Right. And so all of a sudden you have a much higher willingness to pay. They're happening constantly. And if you can actually start marketing around some use cases, and then I would also consider like really limiting from a geography perspective, like the hype cycle of Boston might have died down fairly quickly outside of Boston, but I can assure you it is still very high in the <laughs> Boston, Boston area. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, the hype cycle of Boston will never die down in Boston. And so like mm -hmm. they could have a gigantic business if they went super hard in New England uh, where people, I think, get the brand and probably like the brand. Wicked good kid. <laughs> it's their wicked good. John, John's given like some free distribution strategy yeah. right here. Listen up, Listen everyone. Listen in, wicked good. <laughs> yeah. yeah if, they if they focus super hard on New England, if they uh, did a bunch of use cases, they could raise the, the amount that they charge. Like, I think they're charging six bucks a jar. For like the eight ounce, it was five ninety five, And then for the 16 ounce, which is huge for a cupcake. Maybe I just don't know cake proportions. That's eight ninety five, But like- how much cake are you needing? <laughs> Is that a pint? That's a pint of cake. That's like ice cream. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think they could actually raise their price a bunch and yeah. they could probably find a bunch of use cases where people would be willing to pay much, much more. And by the way, if they can get their profit cranking, then they can actually invest much, much more in building the brand and building distribution. So kind of to me just feels like if they can get a foothold in the right market, then they actually could build themselves a nice, nice little business and probably mm -hmm. sell a lot of cupcakes in jars. 
So let's talk about that deal for a second. Rob, Damon, Lori, and Mark go out because they're either not dessert people or it's just not a good like product fit. So that left our favorite, Mr. Wonderful, <laughs> who immediately was like, okay, I hate your margins, right? <laughs> so I'm going to give you a deal that you don't like, which on brand. Uh, so he offered the $75,000 they were asking for in return for a dollar per jar until that $75,000 was recouped. So they would need to essentially sell 75,000 jars to break even with Mr. Wonderful. And then on top of that, he wanted 50 cents per jar into perpetuity, which is like very much also on brand. Ultimately settled on 45 cents per jar into perpetuity. Well, so it's interesting. There's two ways that they're going to sell. They can sell through wholesale and they can sell through retail. Wholesale is where somebody buys the product from you at a lower price and then marks it up. Um, and the reason that, that you'll sell it to them at a lower price is they're going to actually pay for all the sales and marketing expenses of it. In retail, you're selling direct to consumer. And the margins are pretty different for wholesale and retail right now. So there's two types of margins. There's gross margin and net margin. Gross margin is what you charge for something uh, less the cost to produce it. And then net margin is whatever's left after all your other expenses, how much it costs to distribute it, market it, sell it. And a royalty basically would drop in right before a net margin. And so the gross margin on wholesale is a buck fifty per jar, and it's four fifty per jar in retail. And so if Mr. Wonderful's charging a dollar per unit sold, basically that would leave them in wholesale with only fifty cents per jar that they could spend on everything else or just what they're gonna take home even. Uh, so that would be all the money they would have to distribute into salaries or ops or benefits for employees, all those things. With retail at a 450 gross margin before the royalty, they have $3.50 left after that per jar. Um, and if they can lower costs or they can raise price, those margins will get bigger, of course. But it basically leads them down a path. It says, okay, we have to go retail. We have to go direct to consumer. And we'll probably have to raise price and lower cost uh, because... Otherwise, we won't have enough capital to invest in all the things that we need to do. But that leaves a decent amount that they could spend on customer acquisition and, and sales and marketing and expenses and everything. So I don't think it's as bad as it seems if they are going to go the retail path. Mm -hmm. If it's the wholesale path, I think it's a much tougher road for them. It's wicked smart. Wicked smart. <laughs> wicked smart. Shocks. So if you were a shark at the table, would you invest in wicked good cupcakes? I would, but I do it for more equity, more of a stake. Yeah. I mean, if you can get the deal that Kevin got, definitely, definitely, I would definitely invest in you that. Deal. I can't for sleep at deal. night with myself. <laughs> I I would feel so guilty. I don't know. As Kevin? <laughs> yeah. He He's doesn't feel guilty them about into the anything. right direction. I, I know. I'm just saying, if that were me, I don't know. You know, I think it does align incentives well, and if it works out, then they're going to be glad to pay that royalty forever. Whereas otherwise, like I think it might take them a really long time, and the uh, cupcake craze may pass them by. Hmm. I don't know. Like my gut feeling is like for the zero percent equity, just makes me feel like he wouldn't be as vested in the product. He's like, oh, this is more of like a passive income for me. Yeah, I mean, it's a linear versus a nonlinear return. Unpack that statement. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, in theory, an equity return for the effort you put in, there is a limitless upside, right? Because uh, you are just going to reap some future benefit. And as that, unless they take a ton more money from other people, you're going to own mm -hmm. a piece of this company. And the bigger it gets, 
the size of your stake's going to grow. Whereas uh, with a royalty, it's almost more linear. It's just like, hey, for every unit we sell, I get X amount. And so if you chart your potential returns, one is a straight line and one is a curved line. So that was one way to think about it. I think he's going to be incented to sell a lot of cupcake jars. He's going to get 50 cents for every cupcake jar sold. Yeah. That's like that's like a lot of money. Yep, that is, yeah. good. That is a good kickback. He's basically yeah. their salesperson. <laughs> and it's, and it's guaranteed, yeah. right? Like with equity, the only part that you actually take home is you take home whatever percent of the company you own after mm-hmm. net margin, whereas he's actually going to take a, he's probably taking a higher percent home with the royalty for at least five or 10 years or some period of time as they're scaling. Well, take a bite out of this. So not only is Wicked Good Cupcakes still thriving, they're actually one of the most successful stories to come out of Shark Tank, period, like in all of Shark Tank history. So after the Shark Tank, the company has done over, wait for it, $40 million in sales. So that means that Kevin has made over a million dollars in royalties. Oh, the taste of sweet success. Do we know how much they're charging? John's like, how did they do it? <laughs> okay, so best-selling cupcake four-pack, $50. So wow, okay. They've doubled their retail price. Yeah, they're charging a lot. They just pumped their prices up. It's awesome. They put a great brand. I'm, this, this is awesome. This is Dang. great. Thinking about our three products, which one is the winner of today's episode? I'm going to go with Scully. I think just the amount of success. (laughs) Sorry, John, I see the disappointment in your face because you were going to say the same thing, weren't you? (laughs) All right. I know that I I know I started out talking down on Wicked Good Cupcakes. Uh, I came totally full circle during the course of (laughs) talking through this with everyone and realized this is a brilliant idea. Uh, So I'm all in on Wicked Good Cupcakes. They're the winner for me. I'm going to take the tea to Cohasset. Mm And I'm going to buy a cupcake jar and I'm going to eat it. (laughs) I can't do frosting. It's like it's the frosting of cupcakes. Like the big component of cupcakes is the frosting. And I just I can't do it. What are you talking about? I can't do it. Who are you? Are you just biting it or are you tearing it and then putting it as like a sandwich? Because I tried the sandwich method and I just it's just it's like Oreos, you know, and you get the (gasps) frosting. You're not like Oreos. You're like a monster. This is like it's like death row (laughs) stuff right here. Like. She must have great health, though. I mean, I'm a candy eater for sure, but I just I'm not in it on uh, sweet goods. I didn't even eat my wedding cake. It was just just not for me. (laughs) But, you know, that's fine. My husband ate it all. You didn't make your husband. You didn't make your husband cry and live a a life of regret. Were you now launched a cake company? You can buy John's wicked good quiches. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Today's episode was written and produced by Matthew Brown. Production support comes from Melanie Romero. Have you told a friend about the show yet? A family member, maybe? I told Jerry, my neighbor. You don't know Jerry, but you sort of know Jerry. The guy who sits on his front porch all day, little doggo at his feet, barks at everyone. Not Jerry's fault. Well, maybe sort of Jerry's fault. Training really is about training the owner, not the dog. Anyway, tell people about the show. Okay, that does it for me. We'll see you next week in the tank for another bite.